the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, good afternoon to you. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Lifeline, five minutes after five here in the West, although the clock studio, uh, studio clock rather, seems to think it's seven minutes after the hour, but that's okay. We pick up a couple extra minutes here somewhere. Must be part of that daylight savings plan that we just never got, and you're going to pick up a day and two minutes. <laughs> At any rate, great to have you with us today. Lots to talk about, and uh, I must admit at the start of the show, um, a lot of it on a very serious note, so we're just going to dive in. Um, undoubtedly, Hopefully, from a response standpoint, let me clarify, uh, you had the same reaction as I did, as many Americans did, um, with the recent shooting this time in Allen, Texas. And it seems to be just this ongoing litany of gun violence in America. And if you get right down to it, there have been something like over 200 mass shootings in the United States not forever, but since January. And every time it happens, there's a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth and the demand for greater and stricter gun laws and the hue and cry of don't dare touch my Second Amendment. And then we have politicians talking about offering prayer and thoughts going with the victims' families. Then it kind of disappears out of the news. And in a week or two or three or four, it just enters the annals of history of yet another mass shooting in America, and we go about our business. Until the next time. And it's funny, I can think back to the Columbine shooting in Colorado of, my goodness, more than 20 years ago, and thought that should have been a day of reckoning for America back then. And yet, if you think about the tens of thousands of lives that have been lost to gun violence in this country since Columbine. That wasn't a turning point for us. That was just one of the bookends, with no other bookend on the opposite side of this debate seemingly in sight. And it's a never-endless loop of the response from the left, the response from the right, the response from gun owners, the response from people who've lost family members, and seemingly it's reached the point where we're just numb to this. That we're so numb to this that it's just another day in the park. And we have almost, I wonder, as Americans just come to, if not embrace, at least at some level in our psyche, accept the idea that you may send your son or daughter to school and they may or may not come home because of gun violence. You may choose to go shopping. You may come home safely or not because of gun violence. You might choose to go to a movie theater and enjoy a nice film with family. You may come home and be able to talk about what you thought about the movie, or maybe not. 
And it just seems to continue and continue and continue. And there's been much said about how powerful the gun lobby is and the notion that every gun owner must really enjoy this because clearly nobody wants to address the Second Amendment, that it's in, codified in the Constitution without debate. Although I will challenge this notion. When the Second Amendment was penned, and I think the ratification was... 1891. The popular gun of the time was the flintlock pistol or a blunderbuss. They weren't repeat action. In fact, it could take you as much as minutes to reload. And the thing might go off on you as you try to reload. They were weapons of destruction, but far from the definition of weapons of mass destruction and certainly nowhere near what we see today with assault rifles and rapid fire weapons and the notion of having enough bullets in an arsenal that we see today. Some of these gun owners could outfit multiple armies and back in those days wouldn't have enough to deal with one army, let alone multiple armies. So maybe part of the discussion is, could our founding fathers ever have imagined when they codified gun ownership in the Second Amendment that we would be talking about these kinds of guns guns used for this purpose? All right, let's talk about it. Matthew Lippman is joining us. He is executive director of 97%. Think, what an odd name. Okay, what does this mean? Well, he's going to help explain it to us and kind of pull back the cover on this for what I'm hoping is going to be one of the first reasoned reasonable, fair discussions you might have heard on the radio on this topic today, if not perhaps ever. Matthew, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us. uh, That was a fantastic uh, introduction, by the way. You said everything that I would want. I appreciate that. Matthew, let's first start with the name of your organization. Your organization, in fact, as I understand it, is made up of a bipartisan group of gun owners across America. Explain the 97%. So, thank you. So, 97%, we launched about two and a half years ago, and the idea is to bring gun owners and non-gun owners together to find the areas of agreement and we use data to prove that those areas of agreement exist and we provide that to mostly legislators in Washington DC and around the country 97% of that number is based on a poll that said that 97% of Americans agree on universal background checks so it's our way of saying there's a lot of agreement on this issue already so what happened was Greg we had a conversation, do you know, you probably know uh, Chief Phil Bratton. Please yes, please. indeed so. Yeah, so Bratton, Chief Bratton, when we were researching, you know, we didn't know what we wanted to do. We wanted to see if there's anything. There are lots of great gun rights organizations. There are lots of great gun reform organizations. Is there anything missing in this debate? Because it seems like, as you well know, Greg, people want something to happen, but nothing's happening. So Bratton said to us, he felt that gun owners were not being represented at the table. And it was his opinion that the majority of gun owners favored some type of reform, but they were not well represented. So we set out to prove that. We did polling, focus groups, and we found out that that's true. He was right. 84% of gun owners favor background checks. Two-thirds of NRA members, for example, favor background checks. So long story short, and we'll get more into it as we go here, Craig, is that we would take that and we would say to, like, members of Congress, for example, 
here's where the areas of agreement are. And then, of course, it's up to the members of Congress to do anything about it or not. But that's that's the gist of what we're able to do. You know, it's ironic, as you say, that there was a, a feeling as if there was a, a lack of representation. And yet I think if you talk to a lot of people that are uh, in the decidedly anti-gun camp, they would argue just the opposite, that there's zero representation for those that want restrictions on guns, that it seems as if uh, gun owners of America, the organization, along with, of course, the NRA, uh, seem to get whatever they want. And some have argued that it's kind of beginning to feel like the definition of insanity, that we keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. Nothing stops. Nothing changes. The only thing that changes is the number of gun violence incidences and the number of deaths by guns in America. So you're suggesting that part of the the misperception here is the notion that gun owners want their right to guns completely unrestricted but you're saying that at least from the people that you have polled within the gun ownership community that that is not the case that is not the case and by the way i have to say that most people have never heard of the gun owners of america organization so good for you that you even know about it because most people know about the nra but they have they don't know that there are lots of other organizations out there that represent a segment of gun owners. And Gun Owners of America is one of them, and they do, they are a very influential organization. I would say on Capitol Hill, Craig, Gun Owners of America is more influential than the NRA. What we do is, Craig, we are giving you the data. So we're saying we know for a fact this is where people are, and if you do X, Y, and Z, this will reduce gun violence. And these are the areas that are supported by gun owners and non-gun owners. You mentioned that we're bipartisan. We do the best we can to be as bipartisan as is humanly possible. We have two former NRA lobbyists, for example, on our advisory board. They agree on the need for background checks. We have several former Republican members of Congress on our advisory board. And at the same time, we have the former head of the Brady campaign on our advisory board. Here's something else that we do, Craig. I don't talk about it too much. Every couple of months, we get both sides of the gun debate on a Zoom that's very off the record. We just did it yesterday. And I'm talking about the groups you've heard of on the left and on the right, not all of them, it's about 14. And we have a conversation about gun issues. And the point of it is, we all agree that there should be less deaths. Let's just talk. We don't have to agree on anything in these calls, but let's take down the temperature a little bit and talk because the truth is that most people want to do something. And it's okay to disagree, Craig. This is something I know your audience may agree on some issues, may not. But in this country now, we often find that people disagree. And if you disagree, you're a horrible person. That's not the case, really. Right? So it's okay to disagree. We need to one big step here is just to have civilized conversations about these issues. Absolutely. And to look at this from the perspective of, of course, there are differing opinions. And no, we don't expect one side to completely win the other side over 100%. But the way it used to work in America, and at least in, you know, civilized discourse and, and politics, if politics was ever civilized, uh, and that is that we looked at our differences, then we looked at our commonalities and said, okay, what can each side give? up so that we can both inch closer toward keeping as many people as happy as we possibly can. And sadly, that's gone out of the dialogue. And so then it gets reduced down to don't touch our guns to we have to take away all your guns. And then no, nobody's happy at, at either extreme. I, I want to mention, too, for the both the benefit of our, our guest tonight, uh, Matthew Lipman, as well as for listeners, I don't want you to think Craig is coming at this topic hot and heavy because he's virulently anti-gun. I am a gun 
owner, criminals listening, please take note. Um, we are very aware of gun owners of America because uh, when H.L. Richardson was still uh, one of our senators here in California, he was a frequent guest on this program. And Larry Pratt, one of the founders of Gun Owners of America, was very much a frequent guest on this program. And you've not heard um, about the organization on this show in recent years simply because I reached the point where I said we're in an endless loop and I don't want to give people the misperception that I don't think anything that should be done should be done. Because at the end, let's face it, our kids are dying. If that doesn't wake us up to say, maybe doing something extreme is not the answer. But at the same token, I've got to now believe that doing nothing is not the answer either. Matthew Littman with us today, opening our eyes that it isn't all as we seem to think in terms of the opinion of gun owners as it relates to guns in America. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into more of the statistics that they have discovered and see if we can shed some light on this. One of the statistics that I find illuminating, if not alarming, do you know that the United States represents 5% of the world's population? And yet the United States represents 50% of the world's guns in armies, but in private hands. 50% of the guns on the planet are owned by just 5% of the population. And we've often heard the argument, well, we just need to, if we just have people open carry, more access to guns, that will fix the problem. Texas, you've led the way. How's it working out for you? We'll come back to more of our conversation. Matthew Lippman with us today, Executive Director of 97%. We'll come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There was an interesting survey that appeared on Fox News, I think, uh, either yesterday, must have been yesterday, that, that also demonstrated that amongst conservatives... And gun holders in the upper 80 percentile wanted to see something done. And um, while you might be alarmed at that notion, since we oftentimes hear just the opposite message, maybe it's indicative that there is there's some kind of an influence certainly on the media that, that seems to be suggesting it's business as usual, meaning nothing done, when in fact there is seemingly more meeting of the minds uh, than perhaps what um, what we heretofore have believed. In your conversations, and Matthew Lippman is with us today, Executive Director of 97%. Matthew, in your, your conversation with members and, and surveys taken amongst gun owners, I mean, clearly banning all guns is not the answer. There are constitutional questions of that. But, you know, as I suggested in my opening remarks, I look at the the, uh, the Second Amendment, and it talks very clearly about the notion of a well-regulated militia. I think one of the operative words there is regulated. Um, kind of, in my mind, eschewing the notion that we can't have any restrictions on, on gun ownership, gun purchasing whatsoever. Um, and that is necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, I'm no expert when it comes to English, but it would suggest that if it said and the right of the people would suggest that there are two ideas, the missing, the, the absence of that 
uh, conjunction says to me that it's all part of one idea, a well-regulated militia necessary for the security of the free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, not be infringed. But it, it, it doesn't suggest that there should be no controls since it does say well-regulated. And as I said in my opening remarks, could our founding fathers ever have imagined the emergence of the AR-15? Just so you know, Craig, we talked to, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but we talked to a lot of constitutional scholars. Yesterday we had a call with uh, Adam Winkler, who's a professor at UCLA. He's the number one Second Amendment guy in the country. And we asked him, you know, what is possible and what is not possible, right? Because we don't want to suggest things that the courts will never allow, for example. You do see a lot of that now based on what happened with the Supreme Court decision last June, where things are getting overturned in many states' existing laws. And, you know, as Adam Winkler talks about, not every amendment is absolute, right? I mean, the famous example is free speech. You can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater. And things do have to reflect the times that they live in. Our area, though, of focus, Craig, is where do people agree and disagree, right? And then what's possible? So figuring that out, you mentioned that Fox News poll. That poll was done with an organization called Beacon Research in Boston. We worked with them last year. They worked for Fox. And they work with Elizabeth Warren. That's the kind of bipartisan firm that we try to work with as well. And they find for us those things about gun owners that you were mentioning in the Fox poll that we talk about a lot, which is that gun owners heavily favor certain aspects of gun reform. But those aspects, Craig, are leading up to the time that a person would get a gun, generally speaking, not when they already buy a gun. So, for example, we have, and you talked about this before, a lot of guns in this country. There are over 400 million guns in the United States. We're not getting rid of guns in the United States. No matter who suggests it, that's not happening. So what can we do with what's here to make people safer while respecting Second Amendment rights? And, and you know, toward that end, let, let's let's talk about some of the nitty gritty here. Um, one thing that I think ought to be reasonable there there was, you know, when Uvalde took place, the idea was we well, need to reinforce, strengthen doors at schools, as if somehow that's going to be the answer to preventing people from engaging in this kind of behavior at a public school. And now the argument is, and almost laughingly, uh, and, and I hate to make it sound like I'm 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 picking on uh, Governor Abbott, but Governor Abbott but argue that well, this is really highlighting a mental health issue is the same governor who over the last two years combined removed 200 million dollars from mental health programs in the state of texas so you know little late to use the mental health issue now do i think it's a mental health issue absolutely i do but then the question comes all right if there are people out there that we recognize can't control their anger, cannot distinguish between going out on the firing range and shooting at paper targets versus shooting at the guy in the car next to you because he cut you off in the lane, then, then from the mental health standpoint, doesn't it make sense to say, hey, we want to make sure that only responsible people, we're not doing a, 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 a political litmus test here, but only responsible people that have demonstrated to have solid mental health can own a gun in America. Is that possible from the viewpoint of your organization? Craig, I mean, you've hit on probably the biggest issue, right, which is 
certain people should not necessarily have a gun. So we just did this big study with Dr. Michael Siegel at Tufts. Dr. Siegel has an extreme amount of credibility on both sides of the gun issue. He goes on gun rights shows. He goes on gun reform radio shows. Everybody loves Dr. Siegel. Dr. Siegel did an enormous study. Before he asked these questions in the study, he talked to a lot of the gun rights groups. Your audience may know that sometimes when an organization does a study on guns, they ask the question with an answer in mind that they already want. We wanted to make sure not to do anything like that. And what we found, for example, is that gun owners very much support, if somebody has committed a violent misdemeanor, that person should not be able to have a gun for five years. So for example, if you commit a felony, now you correct, but somebody commits a felony like wire fraud or tax fraud or whatever it might be, they can't get a gun, even though that that type of felony is not, violence is a precursor to violence, right? But if you commit a violent misdemeanor, you can, except in four states, you can get a gun. Very often something like domestic violence, for example, is not down to a misdemeanor. The shooter in Michigan State was originally going to be prosecuted for a felony. It got knocked down to a misdemeanor. He was then able to get more guns, and he killed the people in Michigan State. Eighty percent of gun owners, eighty percent of gun owners believe if you've committed a violent misdemeanor, you should not be able to get a gun for five years. If you had just that law, right? So a lot of people talk about other types of laws that are not nearly this effective. You would reduce homicides with a gun by 19 percent. 19 percent. Isn't that amazing? And we don't have that on the books now. It's a loophole, and I'll tell you, you know, you mentioned legislators. We met with an office where the person has an A-plus NRA rating, and they gave us a bit of a hard time when we came in. And when we talked about all this stuff in the research and that, that specific thing, they didn't realize that. They said that that's a loophole, and they're very interested in hearing more about it. And so that's the kind of thing where this is before somebody would get a gun. That's where gun owners really agree. And, you know, I mean, that just seems to be reasonable. I mean, we, we want this is the irony. We, we want people to demonstrate proficiency when they get behind the wheel of an automobile uh, that we do not require gun safety courses, that we do not require a mandatory background check. And it's always going back to. Second Amendment, Second Amendment, Second Amendment. And it just, as I said in my opening remarks, it just seems to be the, the ultimate in insanity that we're on this endless loop between the two sides. And I guess the big question that I'm going to ask you when we come back after the break, because I don't want to interrupt you here, Matthew, and that is, how do we come to the table? If your organization is saying, hey, we're not, we're not you know, gun-toting extremists here. We want reasonable controls as well. We're seeing other polls that are suggesting the same thing. Then where is the disconnect exactly? Let's talk about that and how we come together. Matthew Littman with us today. By the way, if you're a gun owner and you want to find out more about what this group is doing uh, to try and bring about reasonable debate, reasonable discussion with some solutions that can save the lives of our children. Check them out online, 97%, percent spelled out, 97%.us. Back with more in a moment. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as you're hearing from our conversation this afternoon, uh, people that are reasoning together have concluded, I think, that doing nothing is not going to change anything. So something needs to be done. But what is that something? Well, that's where the age-old concept of coming together and engaging in dialogue and some degree of compromise needs to uh, to take place. And, you know, uh, Matthew Lippman, who's with us, executive director of 97%, even though I'm a gun owner, I don't want to take away guns from other people. I don't want to uh, get into some kind of draconian regulations here. I I do think that there is legitimacy to the Second Amendment. I also, as I said in the beginning, don't think that our founding fathers envisioned that the kind of guns we're talking about today is what they were talking about when they first penned that back in the uh, back in the 18th century. That said, how do we get this dialogue started that doesn't always wind up with, well, we need the guns because we have to protect ourselves from a government that's going to, you know, Washington, D.C. is going to take away all of our rights tomorrow if we don't have guns to fight back and and so on and so forth. And others that seemingly are either content with or, or apparently want to look the other way when somebody is able to stockpile enough ammunition and weapons to start their own small army. Where and how do we go about getting the reasonable dialogue started? So it's a great question, and it's the ultimate question, Craig. How could we get to a point of agreement on these issues? And, you know, we do go to the Democratic offices, and we do go to the Republican offices. And as you know, we hear a lot of the same stuff from people that you hear. And, you know, on the Democratic side, I had lunch with a legislator a couple weeks ago, Congresswoman, and she started talking about an assault weapons ban. And I say to her, an assault weapons ban is not going to get through Congress. Like, why are we trying to do that? And then she tells me that it is, and she's wrong, right? So, you know, that's an area where I think in the Democratic Party there's a lot of influence on that issue of assault weapons. People feel sincerely about it. I'm not saying you shouldn't try if that's how you feel. But there are other things that you could do that have much broader support. Only 34% of gun owners favor an assault weapons ban. So you can't get an assault weapons ban if 34% of gun owners favor it, right? Not to mention all the other things of what is an assault weapon, that sort of stuff. Okay, so that's one thing. On the, on the Republican side, sometimes we hear in these meetings, well, you know, I, I want to do something, but I don't want to be the face of it. I don't want to take the lead because I'm afraid of the backlash. And that's so that's where the dis- that's where the disconnect is on both sides, right? Same ideas that we hear over and over again on one side, a little bit of fear on the other side. And what we say is there are areas of widespread agreement. I'll give you an area where I think there'll be widespread agreement. This legislation hasn't come up yet, but Congresswoman Nancy Mace from South Carolina, Craig, you're familiar with her? Yes. So she wants to bring up this idea of an amber alert for active shooters. Now, in the last Congress, Democrat David Cicilline brought that up. Now, Republican Nancy Mace wants to bring that up, and she got Speaker McCarthy to let her have a vote, a clean vote, on this issue. Now, is that going to solve gun issues? It's not. But is it something where you can start to get some bipartisan support, people start to work together? I think it is. So that's one, and that's going to come up soon. The other thing is, these things that we talk about, like red flag laws, for example. So in our world, in the polling shows, you get a lot of support for red flag laws broadly, and when you start to get into specifics, it drops. But if you offer something to gun owners, if you say, 
due process, in other words, a faster hearing. If you say mental health exams, those numbers start to fly up in terms of gun owners being supportive. We have red flag laws in Florida. No one's complaining about the red flag laws in Florida. They've already been used thousands of times. That's another area of agreement. Less than half the states have it now. More states should have red flag laws. That is an area of agreement. So these are all things where people, if they have a violent history or are in danger of committing violence, people agree that something needs to be done. But, and this is also important, Craig, the loudest voices are usually the ones that don't want anything done on every issue, right? Not just guns. They like the status quo. They like it the way it is. They're calling these officers all the time. And I would just say to you that where gun owners and non-gun owners agree on these types of issues, you also need to advocate for the things that you believe in. People have been quiet on these areas of agreement for too long. They go into their corners. We agree on violent misdemeanors. We agree on red flag laws. Let's tell people that we agree on those issues, and that's how you make progress. And so, like, for example, Craig, we get on a Zoom, Amy Swearer from the Heritage Foundation and Fred, Fred Gutenberg, whose daughter was shot in the back at Parkland. They disagree on Twitter all the time. Amy's maybe one of the smartest people out there. Fred is very passionate on gun issues. We bring these folks like that together, and we sit down, and we talk, and we all have a conversation, and it's civilized, and we try to find areas of agreement. And I think that, and I'm not saying we always do, but we often do. And I think that is how we make progress on these issues. Well, and I think, too, there needs to be, and, and this is this is true for both sides, that there needs to be a, a little bit of <laughs> of candor or, or the willingness to admit uh, some of the, the disingenuous aspects of this. I mean, I'll give you a case in point. Texas is, is sadly, tragically a great example of this. We know that Texans are, are very proud gun owners. They have passed legislation in Texas that you're allowed to open carry. Doesn't matter where you go. Walking down the street, there you are you got your 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 gun and your your holster and the argument was the more guns that are out there when somebody decides they're going to do something crazy they know that there's a likelihood that there's going to be somebody nearby who's also going to be armed to the teeth and they will take out that shooter in a nanosecond the end result will be we will be safer sadly I guess the people that are supposed to be open carrying around the nutcases never got the message because rarely has that happened. In, fa- in fact, in the case of Uvalde, you had people who did legitimately carry guns, the police department, who waited an hour and a half before they decided to even take on the shooter. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a question that I've asked myself several times. If, as the argument is put forward by a lot of the gun lobby, that more guns make us safer, then my question is, well, what is that, when does that number arrive that makes us safer? Is it every American having 10 guns or every American having 20 guns? I mean, if we apply that logic, where do we hit that sweet spot where suddenly there's enough people out there running around with guns that all of us will be terrified of each other and nobody will pull the trigger? And you know what? Even if that were true... Matthew, I think what it what it completely denies 
are the people that don't have any self-control because in so many of these cases, it's always a question of they snapped. We don't know what happened, but they snapped. So it would seem to me that a big part of this argument needs to be the, the, the mental health aspect. And, you know, I've long argued that there are issues going on within society that we're, we're failing to address, that, you know, our kids are exposed to violence every day, entertainment, television, the movies, online. And I think to some degree we've kind of convinced them that violence is the way that we resolve issues, and while that may be, it's certainly not without its its casualties. So, you know, I, I guess the question that I'm posing is, in addition to trying to highlight the areas where we do come together, how do we ratchet down some of the, for want of a better term, ridiculous rhetoric that keeps us apart? Craig, boy, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I have to, I mean, I just, you know, on the, um, we in this country seem to be okay with a certain level of violence. And it really, it's really shocking. And I do believe that that is an issue as well. This acceptance of violence just generally is not healthy for a society. But also it's this idea that, you know, love thy neighbor. I mean, we believe that most people are good people. I believe that most people are good people and want to do something on this issue. So disagree, okay? But it, but there are lots of areas of agreement. And the thing, and this is, I think, a media thing, too, is that, that like, the media loves that this, people disagree, right? Gun owners, for example, will tell you they don't trust the media and they don't trust politicians, and I think that's for good reason. Because the media is looking for a fight very often. But as individuals and as a society, we agree on most issues. And I think on gun issues specifically, we do agree. So, so speaking to people and coming from that place of we, we all care about our families. We all want to be able to, you were talking about this before. We want to be able to go to the movies. We want to be able to go to the grocery store and feel safe. My kid, I was on a flight to Washington the other night, Craig. My kid texts me and says there's a shooter at our school. So I write back and say, where are you? And she says, I'm on the bus. And I say, leave with him on the bus next time you send me a text like that. And then it turns out that there was somebody with a knife at the school. But you could imagine. I'm on a plane how scared out of my mind sure. I am for those few seconds. And that's, that's not exclusive to me. This is permeating for society. And so we need to just do, we need to do a few things. Find those areas of agreement. Stop with the stale arguments of... They're going to take away all my guns, or we're going to take away all their guns. Like, this stuff is ridiculous. There are 400 million guns in this country. Not everybody should have a gun. Let's figure out how to make things a little less dangerous and speak to people in a civilized way. And that's where... 97% is, and that's where most people agree. Let me ask you a final question, because I know oftentimes the argument is, well, you know, uh, if you put more gun control laws in place, the only thing you're going to have are criminals, because criminals are not going to pay attention to the law in the first place. Do, do we need to put stiffer penalties in place, Matthew, so that when the gun is used, not for hunting deer, not for defending yourself, but in the commission of a crime, that the penalties are far more severe, so that some of these criminals will at least be somewhat motivated. We know that they always don't think through. I mean, you know, uh, killing somebody, another human being has been verboten since the beginning of time, and yet we do it all the time. But I'm curious your opinion. If we strengthen the penalties for misuse of a firearm, do you think that will help to move the needle at all? Well, let me tell you what we are, Craig. First of all, people are right. There are a lot of good gun laws on the books right now. There are enforced. That's, that's true. And there may be more that we should have, but there are a lot of good ones. But let me tell you where we come in as an organization. So 
stolen guns, for example, are often used in crimes, right? So we heard an example that at Atlanta Falcons games, people would leave their guns in their cars in the parking lot. They come back and their guns aren't there. And so then those guns could often be used in a crime. So what can we do about that? That's what we try to do. What's the solution? So we invested, and I want to point out that we can't make a profit legally off of this. The money goes back into nonprofit. We invested in a company called Vara, V-A-R-A, in upstate New York, that sells a holster, a safe that looks like a holster with smart technology. And what does that do? That prevents somebody from being able to steal your gun, right? So it's fingerprint technology, makes it more difficult to steal a gun. And again, this came up, I think, through talking to the great police chief, Bill Braddon, was another thing that he had mentioned, was this issue of stolen guns being used in crimes. So our thing is, how do we make it better? How do we prevent this from happening? And so that's where we are on it. We've invested, and like I said, the money would go back into the nonprofit if there is a profit in this company, Vera, that makes this safe, and that will keep that will prevent guns from being stolen. Yeah, and that that certainly makes sense because you hear your cases all the time of you know, well, the five year old picked up the gun and shot the eleven year old. Well, it was sitting on the nightstand. Really. Wow. Well, Matthew, I I really am encouraged by the dialogue. This is some of the the most reasonable give and take uh, on the topic that certainly that I've ever heard. And maybe you're right. Maybe keeping some of the the, the big mainstream media out of the debate is better. Because let's face it, you know, as much as mainstream media will try to tell you they're totally against all this, they also feed on this. Because the old adage, sad, uh, if it bleeds, it leads. In this case, literally, it's true. There are too many people that are that are vested in keeping this argument and fight amongst Americans going, and instead a reasonable approach to say, okay, we know what it is we disagree on, let's find out what it is we agree on, and use that as a starting point. 97% is attempting to do that from uniquely a gun owner's position. More information available on the web at 97%, percent spelled out, 97%.us. It's Executive Director Matthew Lipman. Thank you so much for being with us today, Matthew. It's been a very enlightening and reasonable conversation. I hope we get a chance to do it again sometime soon. 5.50 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've been talking about, well, a number of very disturbing bills making their way through the California state legislature that you need to be aware of. So we're going to take a moment and get you an update. In particular, we talked last week about Senate Bill 407 that essentially says to a good percentage of California foster parents who in this state, for a lot of these people, see it as ministry. You probably won't be surprised to find out that a good percentage of them are believers who want to come to the aid of a child that's dealing with a set of circumstances at home. Maybe the parents are fighting. Maybe one's in jail. Maybe there's abuse going on in the household, whatever. They need to be removed from that environment, put into a foster family. And so many families see this as a ministry. But imagine being told, yeah, that's okay if you do that ministry part thing, but just make sure that you don't enforce any of your own uh, moral guidelines within your own home. That is effectively what Senate Bill 407 is saying to Christian foster parents. Let's get some more. Jonathan Keller joins us, president of the California Family Council. And uh, Jonathan, this is another one of those, wow, if it isn't hard enough as it is to find adequate number of qualified foster parents in California, let's put a bill through the legislature to even more significantly reduce the number of available foster parents. Unbelievable. 
Well, absolutely, Craig. And it really is tragic. It's yet another example that we're seeing coming out of the California legislature, where at best, they are really indifferent to people of faith. But I'm sorry to say, I really feel like they are outright hostile. Uh, this is something that we at California Family Council see almost every day. I'm actually calling you right now. I'm in Sacramento across the street from the Capitol building in our new office that we just opened last October. And as we've been here more and more these last six months, it's been incredible to see the, frankly, vitriol that we've seen coming out of so many legislators across the building. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some people who are followers of Jesus. They love the Lord, and they are trying to do what is best for our state. But there are so many others that seem to be just completely captive to an ideology, a worldview that views Christians as a nuisance or as the enemy. Yeah, undoubtedly so. And of course, you know, this sort of attack and assault on people of faith is nothing new to the state of California. I mean, look, for example, at what's been going on with many of our state's um, pro-life or crisis pregnancy centers. I mean, going back to a time even four or five years ago where the legislator, legislature passed a measure insisting that pro-life facilities that are there to truly offer women the full picture, real choice, that they had to post signs advising women that having an abortion was nevertheless her right, as if somehow any woman in the state of California, let alone the entire country, isn't already aware of that. And had it been a balance in saying yes, and abortion clinics also post signs and say that there are alternatives to terminating your child's life, no, that requirement didn't work both ways, just one way. And again, I think a classic example as you suggest, of an attack and assault on people of faith. That's absolutely correct. And Craig, I know that bill you're referencing, AB 775, uh, thank goodness the Supreme Court of the United States in 2018 did strike that bill down, but it was by the narrowest of margins. I mean, literally, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote for the majority in that case, and it was only a five to four decision. You had the four liberal progressive justices that were completely fine uh, in 2018 with forcing every Christian pro-life pregnancy resource center in the state of California to advertise for abortion. But Craig, that was, I know it seems like we dodged a bullet and we did, but California legislators are actually back at it again. This year, there are two additional bills that are targeting pregnancy care centers. I, in fact, California Family Council, we just hosted a call today with a group of pregnancy centers from across the state warning them about this bill. One of them creates a new propaganda campaign to smear these pregnancy centers as disinformation, or in the words of the bill author, a quote-unquote fake clinic. Uh, but the other one goes even farther and is even worse. Uh, AB 315 actually would create a bounty system and would allow individual citizens to claim that they were deceived by a pro-life pregnancy center, they could then sue these pregnancy care centers for damages, and it opens up a massive liability to every one of these free clinics that is just trying to offer love and support to women facing an unplanned pregnancy. Yeah, this is clearly no longer a matter of defending a woman's right to choose. This is manipulating a woman into making only one choice because, quite frankly, it's 
financially profitable. Give us an update in terms of your perspective on Senate Bill 407. I I know that this has already made it out of a couple of committees. Uh, Where do we stand, and most importantly, what the listeners need to be doing? Well, the good news on this is that finally some foster care families and parents are starting to come out of the woodwork and speak out in opposition to this. Uh, you can find out about that bill, uh, 407, as well as the other bills I mentioned on our website, CaliforniaFamily.org. If you go to the top of our website there, there's a page that lists all the important legislation we're tracking. And there's actually an action center, so people can contact their legislators and directly reach them with how they feel about these bills. Um, my my hope and my, my prayer would be that as your listeners and other people come out of the woodwork and engage on this legislation that there would be some members of the legislature who would listen and would actually acknowledge that at a time when the state is facing a crunch for volunteers, we're facing a a tragedy and really a crisis in the foster care system with how many children are in the system, it is the last thing that we want to do to be trying to tell parents, we don't want you, we don't want your values, we don't want your Christian uh, beliefs, But acknowledge that the state of California should not be in the business of trying to exclude parents from serving families or from serving children just because they follow a traditional historic view of Christianity. Yeah, and that's the important message that needs to be communicated. And again, as Jonathan points out, I know we we talk a lot of numbers and bills and measures and who to call. Easy way to kind of cut through some of the confusion when you get home tonight, go to CaliforniaFamily.org. Easy address to remember, CaliforniaFamily.org. There you'll get complete details on the status of AB 315, AB 710, and AB 407. And then contact your member of the California State Legislature and urge he or she to vote against these dangerous and, and quite frankly, First Amendment right destructive bills. Jonathan Keller, president of the California Family Council. Jonathan, as always, we appreciate the hard effort and the updates online at californiafamily.org. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.